By God, I had planned to keep it to myself and God, but then the sheet speckled red, blood like pomegranate jewels spots the pillowcase. It's the night of Kelly's wedding. The Pacific Northwest has received a flurry of snow, and as I get out of bed to gargle away the metal from my mouth, I wonder how the drops of red will look on the pristine white of the patio. I wonder if the blood means the disease is now severe, even lethal. Mostly, I wonder how much of this is America's doing. In the morning, I go out to the living room where Kelly and Ethan are nursing their coffees, clearly hungover. I tell Kelly she has to take me to the doctor. She still has mascara on from last night. Can this wait, Hera? I shake my head, tell her it must be today, and my host mother's face sets into annoyance, which is doubly unfortunate because she and I shared a tender moment last night. The kind of thing that has become a rarity of late. This must not be how she and Ethan plan to spend the first morning of their marriage, but I can't drive and she is the adult in charge, so this is how it has to be. In the car ride to the doctor's, I try to make conversation, telling her I had a great time attending my first American wedding. Kelly loves it when I posit myself as a virgin to America, so that cheers her up a bit. I also mention that I spoke with Uli on the phone after the party. So, are you two dating now? He lives in New York. I'm going back to Pakistan in five months. Yes, but life is long, she says. And you're smart. I'll be shocked if you don't find your way back to America. You're assuming I want to. See, that's my problem. Kelly's doing me a favour by driving me around the day after her wedding. Why can't I keep my mouth shut? Well, she says, frowning. They do say it's the land of opportunity. Kelly lives in rural Oregon, where the state of opportunity is such that I haven't been able to find an after-school job in five months. But it's 2011, America is still king of the world, the cool guy's in the White House, and Kelly can't comprehend the rest of the world not clamouring for these shores. I just hope you see your own potential, she continues. If you remain in Pakistan, I'll always worry about your safety. Again, it's 2011 and Americans are worried about everyone else's safety, sated in the knowledge that their nook of the world is far safer than elsewhere, although don't tell them why that might be. History is what happens in other places. America transcends it. This will all change, but at the time I can merely nod. Leaving home isn't easy, I say, offering my own banality in response to hers. And you've already done it at such a young age. She replies, upbeat, as we take the Eugene exit. Mark my words, you'll be back in no time. My mother tells me that the first time she returned to Hamburg, she cried every morning for California. Did you ever ask her how many times she cried for Hamburg? Kelly sighs. I'm so bloody difficult. Well, she is much happier here. I pinch back my tongue and change the subject to the honeymoon. Kelly and Ethan are leaving for Hawaii next week. But I don't buy it. That thing she says about her mother. Of course one can be happy anywhere, 
Certain zip codes help, and yet none are necessary. But it is Kelly's certainty that irks me. Her mother must have done what many emigrants do, create neat narratives for their children, flimsy accounts of one-way movement they then begin to internalise. A lie told often enough becomes the truth. And perhaps these accounts are not lies, but simply omissions that are lied over how home is forever that other place. The first one to drive you to despair. The lover you took before learning to externalise the deeds of the world. It is the sole landscape of dreams. The only place that will ever convince you that its failings, its bounties, its excesses and caresses are all your own. After all, where does it end and you begin? The doctor is a lean man with suspiciously white teeth who asks me to repeat my name. I want to get it right, he insists, and I smile as if I haven't heard that a hundred times already. I tell him about the cough that sits like a nail in my throat, the fever that comes and goes, the fatigue that burrows into my body each afternoon. He nods. How long have you had the cough? Three months. He raises his eyebrows. And you're just seeing someone now? I thought it was a winter cold. He shakes his head in disappointment, typing away at his computer. Also, I begin because it is no longer a thing I can keep to myself and God. I coughed up blood last night. The doctor swivels in his chair to face me. Blood? Kelly looks up from her phone. You didn't tell me that, Hera. I just saw it this morning. Do you have night chills? The doctor asks. Yes. Productive cough? Productive? Is there a phlegm? Yes. He glances down at my file. It says here you're from Pakistan? I nod. How long have you been in America? Five months. Were you sick while you were in Pakistan? Not exactly is the answer. No. I tell the doctor, my eyes falling to the faint scar on my arm. He writes down some tests, looking grim. I take the elevator to the lab where the nurse asks me to cough vigorously into a tube. Then she ties a tourniquet around my arm and feels for a promising vein. I look away towards the window, which overlooks low-lying buildings flanked by fur. Spencer Butte sits in the distance under a blanket of snow. When I arrived in Oregon last summer, evenings would linger forever, the sky full of pink promise even at dinner time. Now it's not yet four, but the sun has already grown meek, leaving behind the unmistakable blue of dusk. Perhaps this is the only thing common between here and home, the cruelty of a January evening. The nurse will call tomorrow, let's hope for the best. The doctor says when I return to his office, looking very much like he's hoping for no such thing. Kelly is quiet in the car. I wonder if I should call Ollie when I get home. What will he say?
that I shouldn't assume the worst. Let the test come back. It might not be what I think it is. The sort of stuff people say to buy time to react to someone else's misery. As for my parents, I decide I'll wait till the next day. After the nurse has called and confirmed what I already sense is true, and I have thanked her and she has hung up, I will not put down the receiver, but instead dial that plus 92 home. And I will tell my parents with the certainty of iron that I'm terribly sick and it's their fault.